Hey everybody, this is Viktor Kovalenko from the United States. I am a former Ukrainian journalist and a military veteran. This is my podcast about Ukraine and in particular about the ongoing Russian war against this young European country. My guest today is a professor from the Rutgers University in New Jersey, Alexander Motel. He is a historian, political scientist, writer and artist. He is an expert on Ukraine, Russia and the former Soviet Union. Native of New York, Dr. Motel is one of the strong Ukrainian voices here in America. We are going to talk about the tectonic geopolitical changes that the Russian war in 2022 is triggering. I'd like to start our talk from the fact that the war of Moscow against Ukraine didn't begin in February 2022. This continues for centuries in many forms, military invasions, famine, political repressions and erasing the Ukrainian language, music and traditions. Currently we have the hot military form of this ongoing war. I think now Ukraine got a real historic chance to win this war once and forever. Welcome to my podcast, Professor. I agree with you completely that uh, this is a unique moment in Ukraine's history and that if things go well, Ukraine actually has the opportunity, the chance to become fully independent, decolonized and free of Moscow's imperial influence. Uh, obviously, that depends on the outcome of the war. Um, but at this point in time, It does look like Ukraine is on the winning side. It's holding on to it, the territories in the Donbass, despite the fact that the Russians are making incremental progress. Importantly, Ukraine seems to be on the verge of recapturing Kherson province. That would frankly be much more significant than the Donbass, because the Donbass has political and symbolic importance. But when it comes to military issues, Kherson is strategically extremely important. And to recapture Kherson, oblast or province, would mean recapturing the canals that provide the Crimea with water and destroying the so-called land corridor that Russia hoped to build from Russia proper through southern Ukraine into the Crimea. So at this point in time, Ukraine has been performing well if, and this is a very big if, but if heavy weapons are provided in large numbers by the West in general and the United States in particular, and it looks like they will be provided in large numbers, then Ukraine should be in the position one, maybe two months from now to launch a massive counteroffensive that should succeed or could succeed in driving the Russians out of the territories they seized after February 24th, and possibly even recapturing all of the Donbass and Crimea. That, of course, is the key. If Ukraine can pull off that, then it will have won the war. Uh, of course, it will have paid an enormous price, but it will have won the war. My next question is about the tools that Russia weaponizes. I mean that Russia weaponizes the Ukrainian grain by blocking its export in the Black Sea. As we remember from history, Stalin used food as a weapon against Ukrainians in the 30s of the previous century. He organized an artificial famine, better known as a Holodomor genocide. Well, uh, you know, before we talk about that, I mean, the the other important point to keep in mind 
is that Russia has actually committed genocide in Ukraine in the last few months. Uh, so just as the Holodomor, the hunger famine, was a genocide executed by Stalin and his people in Ukraine, so too in the last three months, Moscow has committed genocide. It has targeted intentionally Ukraine's civilian population uh, in the hope of destroying it. And that is the United Nations definition of genocide. And a number of very important scholars of genocide have concluded the same. So it's important to keep in mind that Russia has committed genocide already. And what you refer to is, of course, a very important second point, namely that Russia is using grain in a, as a weapon. It's weaponizing grain. It's weaponizing food. In 1932 and 1933, it used grain to subdue the Ukrainians and to destroy the Ukrainians. Now, Russia is using grain to blackmail the world into making concessions uh, to the war. And of course, you know, whether or not that succeeds, it looks as so far that it's not going to succeed. But the point is that those shortfalls in grain can and probably will produce vast suffering, hunger, and possibly famine in some countries of the world. But again, this just goes to show that the current Russian regime, headed by Vladimir Putin, is first of all fascist, secondly imperialist, and as a result has absolutely no regard for human life. It is an evil regime that is determined to destroy Ukrainians and that is more than happy to destroy Russians and, of course, anybody else who happens to get in the way of Putin's mad schemes. In that sense, the regime is exactly alike to Adolf Hitler's Nazi regime. It's warmongering, it's imperialist, it's fascist, and frankly, it's evil. And it needs to be destroyed. That's the only way the world in general and Eastern Europe and Ukraine in particular will ever enjoy any peace. Does the Putin's Russia remind you of the Soviet Union? Is modern Russia is just a bad, ugly copy of the USSR? What do you think? Well, it's a bad, ugly copy of Stalin's USSR. On the one hand, namely in terms of the kinds of policies it's pursuing, the expansionism, the aggressiveness, the disregard for human rights, the willingness to engage in genocide, that is extremely reminiscent of Stalin. And as you know, Vladimir Putin regards Stalin as a heroic figure. So in that sense, that parallel is very clear. In terms of the regime itself, Putin regime is extremely corrupt, is extremely inefficient, it's very prone to making mistakes, and in the end, at the end of the day, it's very brittle. It's actually a very weak regime. Its legitimacy is very tenuous. And in that regard, Putin's regime resembles Brezhnev's. Uh, so policies resemble Stalin. The regime resembles Brezhnev's. And just as the Brezhnev regime's weak, was in need of reform and ultimately collapsed, so too, I think, the Putin regime is weak, is in need of reform, and will ultimately also collapse.
My next question is about the changes that this Putin's war is triggering globally. We see how the United States and Europe are supporting Ukraine with weapons and ammunition, which was unthinkable when I was on the front lines in 2014. Also, Ukraine is in the process of receiving the candidate status to join the European Union. What is your opinion about such a tectonic geopolitical shift? Well, as you said, the the first and most obvious change is that Ukraine has become a genuine security interest for the West. It always was, but the West never really appreciated that. And for 30 years, essentially, the West did not have a coherent Ukraine policy. Now it does, or at least it seems to. So it's providing Ukraine with weapons. It looks like Ukraine will become a candidate member of the European Union. And as you said, that was unthinkable. That was unthinkable not just eight years ago. That was unthinkable four months ago. And now, in principle, Ukraine is even closer to being a member of NATO. I don't know if that'll happen soon, but four months ago, it was completely unthinkable. Now it's actually thinkable. So there's been a sea change, and Ukraine has suddenly become an important geopolitical interest of the West. And of course, it always was of Russia, but of the West. And that is a sea change. Second major change is Russia. Until the war, Russia, America, and China were considered to be the three superpowers or great powers, uh, call them what you like. The war has revealed Russia to be far weaker than everybody thought it was. We always knew that the Russian economy was weak. It's smaller than the economy of Texas. It's smaller than the economy of the Benelux countries. And it's going to become even smaller as a result of sanctions and so on. Uh, But the army was always considered to be very impressive. And as it turns out, the army is not as impressive as we thought it was. So suddenly, Russia prestige is declining, its clout, its power on the international arena is declining. And of course, that essentially means that there are now two superpowers in the world, the United States and China. And, you know, at this point in time, China and Russia are sort of allied. Uh, Back in January, it looked as if they were going to be very closely allied. Now that alliance isn't quite as impressive and as strong as it seemed then. And I can imagine that the United States will make overtures to China in order to isolate Russia, because Putin Russia has become dangerous, not just for the West, not just for Ukraine, but for all of Eurasia and especially China. China has no interest in being a partner with a crazy dictator who is unpredictable and could start World War III. The Chinese want stability. That's always good for business. So in any case, the geopolitical landscape is already shifting because Russia, which was a dominant actor, is now receding in importance. And that, of course, means that Eurasia will come under the influence of China uh, and the world will be, as it were, uh, dominated by China and the United States. And of course, what happens next is also very interesting because if Russia survives, it will be weak. It will be similar to North Korea. But there is a good chance, as a number of scholars and analysts are pointing out, that Russia could actually fall apart. Again, we don't know whether that will happen, but it's become thinkable. 
Uh, a few months ago, it seemed unthinkable. Now it's actually thinkable, and many people are thinking about it. So if Russia falls apart, then the geopolitical landscape of Eurasia changes completely. You are listening to the podcast about the Russian war against Ukraine. My name is Viktor Kovalenko, and my guest today is a historian and political scientist, Alexander Motel, a professor of the Rutgers University. Is the political change possible in Russia now? Can we expect a coup against Putin or a revolution? Or will it be a peaceful transition of power or even collapse of the Russian Federation? Well... Again, it's obviously hard to say, but what we do know is the following, that Putin has committed an enormous strategic blunder by attacking Ukraine. That's objectively the case. We also know that many Russian elites in the army, in the FSB, amongst the oligarchs, recognize that he's committed a strategic blunder. There is criticism. Uh, there is pushback by Putin. He's fired many generals. A number of a fairly large number of people working in the FSB have been fired. A number of these elites have been jailed. So there's obviously dissatisfaction. There's obviously some degree of anger at Putin for having launched a war that is arguably destroying Russia and is certainly destroying the Russian army and delegitimizing the Russian secret services. All of that is a reality, and we know that there are many Russian elites who are very unhappy. So the elements for a coup are all present. Dissatisfaction amongst the elites, a strategic catastrophe that Putin has created. The only question now is, will there be some group of individuals within the FSB or within the army general staff or perhaps elsewhere who will initiate some form of conspiracy in order to launch a coup d'etat or perhaps simply to squeeze and move, push Putin out of power in a less military fashion. It's perfectly possible. And as you know, a very large number of Russian, American, Ukrainian, and other analysts do believe that some kind of coup is actually not just thinkable, but indeed very likely to happen. Again, that depends on so many other factors that we don't know. If Russia suffers a major defeat within the next few weeks or months, that would obviously make a coup more likely. Alternatively, if the front stabilizes, that might make the coup less likely. But we do know that there is dissatisfaction, and it's very likely that something will happen. But as to what exactly and when, it's that's uncertain. One can expect, however, that if some kind of attempt to push Putin out occurs, or if Putin leaves for natural reasons, then we are pretty certain that there will be a vicious power struggle in the aftermath of his departure. It could be similar to the power struggle in the 1920s. It could be similar to that of the 1950s. It could be similar to that that happened after Brezhnev died. 
It, we don't know. But any one of those scenarios is possible. But, but what we can expect with a fair degree of certainty is a power struggle. And during power struggles, there's always some instability. There's always some chaos. And it's then that it's very possible that certain other groups, the Democrats, non-Russians, might decide to raise their demands and to inject themselves into the political struggle as well. In one of your recent articles, Professor, published by the website 1945, you mentioned the possibility that Putin, being desperate without a victory in Ukraine, may attack the West. We see that the Russian TV constantly broadcasts threats about the nuclear strikes on the West or destruction of Poland or an assault on the Baltic countries like Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia. Your opinion? Well, if Putin were a rational leader, I'd say that attacking Poland or Estonia or any country today Uh, when he's barely hanging on in the war with Ukraine, would be incredibly stupid. But unfortunately, we know that Putin isn't quite as rational as we expected him to be. Had he been rational, he would never have invaded Ukraine, because he would have known in advance that that was simply stupid. And it's turned out to be, as I said, a strategic miscalculation of enormous size. So given the fact that we don't know Putin's mental condition, given that we can assume that he is prone to make mistakes, that he thinks too highly of his own capabilities and underestimates the capabilities of his adversaries, it's thinkable. I don't know how possible, but it's certainly thinkable that he could decide to attack something like Estonia or possibly Lithuania, because, of course, now there is that disagreement over Kaliningrad. Why would he do that? Well, for one thing, because it would be easy, small countries with very small armies. Uh, but secondly, I think the main reason for doing that would be is that it would place NATO in a very difficult position, because the NATO countries would then have to ask themselves, would they be willing to fight a war with Russia Not in Ukraine, but with Ukrainian troops, but with NATO troops. And that would mean sending German troops to Estonia, French troops, and so on. And it's not clear to me that NATO would be willing to do that. I think the Americans might be. I wouldn't bet that the Germans and the French and the Italians would be willing to send troops to save Estonia. And of course, so given that kind of possible outcome, this would be a victory for Putin because he could then invade and he would then show to the world that NATO is actually weak. It's confused. It's fragmented. And that would be a positive outcome for Russia. Professor, I would like to get your opinion about an opportunity for Ukrainian partisans on the occupied territories. We know from the World War II about the Ukrainian partisans in western parts of Ukraine. They for years resisted the Stalin's occupation and inflicted severe losses on the invaders. Well, they already are. As you know, they became very active towards the end of April, but especially in May. Their activity has continued. Uh, there is there seems to be a fairly strong partisan movement in Kherson, in Berdyansk and Melitopol. 
There is evidence of a partisan movement in Luhansk as well, and possibly, and, and I mentioned Bogdansk already, so, uh, so it's there too. So it's primarily in the South that the partisans have been active, and thus far they've staged some bombings. Uh, they they're constantly distributing leaflets. Uh, just today, I read a I saw a video done by partisans in Kherson directed at the Russian army. So they've attacked collaborators. They've bombed some administrative and other buildings. They've destroyed some railroad cars, some locomotives. So they're becoming increasingly significant. What that means is, ideally what that means is that once Ukraine starts its counteroffensive on pushing the Russian troops from one side, and if the partisans can become active and destroy infrastructure, oil and gas depots, in other words, undermine the ability of Russia to resist, then this would be a very, very strong way of supporting the counteroffensive and of weakening the Russian forces. And as it is, as you know, President Ukraine has made inroads in Kherson province. Just yesterday, I heard from a Ukrainian analyst that they've already, Ukraine has recaptured or captured the second line of defense that the Russian built around Kherson, which means that there's only one more line of defense to capture. And at the same time, we see an activization of partisan activity in Kherson city as well. So I'm sure there is a coordination taking place. And as the armed forces attack, uh, so too the partisans are you know, attacking as well. And that seems to be a very active kind of encirclement of the Russian forces that seems to be leading to the liberation of Kherson. And then if that could be repeated in Melitopol, Berdyansk, and so on, uh, that would be extremely significant. At the end of the episodes, I traditionally ask my guests about how the Russian war in Ukraine will end and what the victory for Ukraine may look like. Well, ultimately, it would be nice if Ukraine could return, liberate all the territories. But personally, I would be delighted if we could simply reestablish control of the territories that were seized by Russia after February 24th. That would already be a major victory. Now, if Ukraine had the military capacity to seize the rest of the Donbass and the Crimea, that would be wonderful. My guess is that the Russians would resist very, very strongly and that this might turn into a bloodbath. That's where I have some fears. Is it worth that Ukrainians die for the sake of some territory? You know, again, in principle, the answer is as few as possible should die for as much as possible territory. But of course, in reality, it's it's not always that easy. And the last thing I want to see is uh, thousands and thousands of young Ukrainian men and women dying for a territory that they cannot fully seize or not fully control or that becomes an object of Russian attacks in the future. Uh, so at some point, again, I don't know where, but at some point, Ukraine has to make a decision whether the continued deaths of its soldiers are worth the territory. And as I said, I don't have an answer to that. I don't know. If it were easy to drive out the Russians, I'd say, 
say, yes, drive them out. But of course, it won't be easy. But as I said, if Ukraine manages to drive out the Russians from the territories they seized after February 24th, that would be, by any measure, a major military victory for Ukraine. It wouldn't be ideal. Ideally, we would, you know, march on Moscow and destroy the Russian Federation. But by any measure, by any objective measure, this would be an enormous victory for Ukraine. And it would go down in history books as an enormous victory for Ukraine. At this point, I'm wrapping up this episode of my podcast about Ukraine. My name is Viktor Kovalenko. I am a former Ukrainian journalist and veteran. My guest today was a professor of political science, Alexander Motel, from the Rutgers University in the New York City area. Please support my podcast by donating to my PayPal. Also, follow me on Twitter for updates and discussions. I say goodbye till the next episode. So long.